Well, welcome back. We're in the Book of Romans. We're in Lesson 23 today. Uh, we're in that section of the Book of Romans on sanctification, chapter 6 to 8. And within that section, we're in the seventh part of that. We're looking specifically at Romans 7, 14 to 25 today. And I've simply called this section, The Struggle with Sin. To get us started, I think I need to tell three stories about Paul. I think that will help us quickly to understand what today's struggle with sin looks like, and namely this. The struggle with sin that we're going to look, like, look at in the Apostle Paul is the reality that he knows he's a struggling person, and he knows he's the problem. But I want to tell you three stories about my son, Paul, who didn't always know he was the problem. But now he's a 34-year-old follower of Christ, has been since he was a boy, uh, loves the Lord, fully adjusted, even though he grew up in the Doyle home. But I want to tell you three quick stories to remind us that it's easy to say, no, it's somebody else's fault. When in fact, Paul's going to get here and say, we're the problem, but there's a solution. Three quick stories about my son, Paul. One day when he was little, he had a friend over. And they were in the room, and they had the door open to the room, and there was a large bookcase with all kinds of toys and things on it. And Carl and I were out, you know, 20 feet away, and we hear, crash, bang, smash! And we come in the room, we're worried about somebody got injured, everybody looked fine. And my son, Paul, is holding one of those little green Gideon's New Testaments, and he says, I was reading my Bible. <laughs> we're like, that doesn't look like what happened here. Second Paul story. When he was small, we lived next door to other seminary students. I was in seminary at Dallas, and we had some friends next door. And there was a little fence between, and each of us had a little porch that you could see their porch. Well, it just so happened that our son Paul and his friend Luke, the same age, both got disciplined at the same time and put in time out. Okay? They both go out to the porch. And they're looking at each other across the porch. Carla can see through the little kitchen window what's going on. And they say to each other after a few minutes, Hey, we're not bad guys. No, we're good guys. Yeah, we're prisoners. <laughs> Again, not fully grasping the, that he was the problem, right? It is funny. Third Paul story, and really probably the classic line that Carla and I have used many times since then. My son Paul had disobeyed, and Carla, as a good mom, was going to him to talk to his heart and shepherd his heart, and also have to discipline him, but asked him the question, Paul, what is the problem? And he said, you, you are the problem. <laughs> I believe all three of those sins come from my side of the family. All right, so. <laughs> this section that we are in today, verses 14 to 25, is in some ways the most debated part of the book of Romans, but also one of the most important for us to understand that we, we are the problem. But God has a solution for all of that. So let me read verses 14 to 25. In Romans chapter 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, 
I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. The struggle with sin. Some uh, introductory parts to look at the big picture of the pieces of this, because it can be confusing with all the eyes and them, and it wasn't me, it was the devil, <laughs> and all of those kind of things, right? It wasn't me, it was my other friends. So a few things to consider. Number one, where are we in big picture? In this chapter, in chapter 7, there are at least four parts that we've looked at, and here they are in the chapter overview. Number one, or A, the law can neither justify nor sanctify you. That was verses 1 to 6. We're married to Christ. We're no longer married to the law. B, the law is not responsible for your sin. That's what we looked at last week. It's me. I'm the problem. It's my sin inside of me that reacts to the law. The law didn't make me sin, but the law exposes my sin like an MRI machine exposes problems. C, nor is the law the cause of your death. Paul says that he died after he was exposed to the law. What does that mean? He saw himself as a sinner worthy of death, and that sin leads to death, and he knew that he needed a savior. And then D, the law is spiritual and good, the problem is with our indwelling sin, and that's what we're looking at today. So some things to consider when we get into this passage. There are good and godly people who disagree about what this passage is teaching. Some people feel that Paul is an unbeliever in this passage. And some people believe that he's a believer. Some people believe that it's Paul as a believer, but it's Paul before he knew about the secret to the Christian life. That is, he's saying, hey, this is me on a daily basis, but until I got to chapter 8 in the Holy Spirit, I didn't know you could get over this. And some would say, uh, yes, Paul is going to bring us to the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is not going to take you completely out of the struggle, but rather is the weapon to help us through the struggle. And that's more the position I'll be taking, but not that chapter 8 has no meaning. When we get to chapter 8, Paul is going to introduce the Holy Spirit, you know, the agent of power and life. 
And so it's not, oh, that's not important, but rather the question we have to resolve is, does the struggle ever go away, even with the introduction of the Holy Spirit? And so the position I'll be taking, as you probably already know, is the struggle is real in every Christian life. The struggle is forever in every Christian life. And there's no dedication, secret moment, third baptism of the Holy Spirit, give money, go to a special thing, where you get to a plateau that the struggle is over. And you just walk in the Spirit the rest of your life. Uh, That I do not believe is scriptural. But you don't have to live carnally or always losing. I don't think that's the point of Romans 7. Paul's saying the struggle is real. Every day, it's a war. However, the Holy Spirit is going to help me in that war so that I can win, but I'm not ever going to get to the point where there are no battles I lose. I will lose some battles, but we will win the war, is the bigger picture in there. Okay. So, at the bottom of page one, some things then to consider as we look at this passage. Uh, A, Paul first shared his testimony of how the law was a tutor to bring him to justification through Christ. That's what we looked at last week. What did the law do? Interestingly, though, importantly, is that Paul had verses 7 to 12 or 7 to 13 was all in the past tense. That's what we looked at last week. Paul said, so the law did this to me, and the law exposed my sin, and the law made me feel these things, and then the law did this, and sin did this past tense. All of that was past tense we looked at last week. Because that's Paul's section of his testimony of his conversion. The law was used by God to demonstrate I was a sinner, made me aware of that in a way that I never would have, and when I saw coveting, as a sin that was overarching in my life. I was undone and I died spiritually. I was already dead, but then I knew I was dead. And God used that to bring me to Christ as my Savior. What we have here in verses 14 to 25 is Paul in the present tense. All of this is present tense. I struggle with this. I am having this happen to me. This is how this is happening all the time. And this is a big change in it. And this is, I believe, Paul talking about his testimony of being a Christian and living in the day-to-day battle. So B. Now in this section, Paul is sharing his testimony of his then present tense, inner struggle with sin. And C. The section ends with Paul's future tense, hope of deliverance. Who's going to do this? The Lord Jesus is ultimately going to deliver me from this whole thing. And then D. Paul's struggle with sin is meant to instruct and encourage us. Let's stay there for just a second. Well, you can turn the page if you want. It's not a cult. <laughs> Do not turn the page. You know. uh, I'll still make my point. You guys can go on to those wonderful drawings. Uh, Paul's struggle with sin is meant to instruct and encourage us. Uh, the Holy Spirit has put all of Scripture in here for particular purposes. And I think it's the argument of the greater to the lesser or the lesser to the greater, and that is, if the Apostle Paul considered one of the greatest Christians who ever lived struggled with sin, how much more should I expect in my own life the possibility that I would struggle with sin? And then secondly, if he struggled with sin, then it makes sense of the life that I'm struggling as an example. Because if Paul's example was... So, 10 minutes after I became a Christian, I began to pray 20 hours a day. And I never sinned. And I don't know what you guys are talking about. I don't even know what fear is. I don't know what, you know, whatever it is. We'd all be like, I'm not a Christian. Because that's not indicative of my own life. 
But then you have to ask the question, well, maybe I'm not a Christian, but maybe all the other people in this room are Christians and they don't struggle. They're like the Apostle Paul. He doesn't struggle, but Dave struggles and a few other people in here struggle. Uh, when they have the Left Behind series, apparently we're going to be here. Okay? And always you can say, has anybody reached the point in this room where you are living in sinless perfection? You have appropriated that when you became a Christian, you did not struggle anymore. The struggle went away and the victory was continuous. And uh, if anyone does say that, and if you're married, we'll have your spouse come up. <laughs> and if you're single, we'll have your best friend come up and share. It is meant to encourage us and instruct us. I just want to say it one more time. It's an instruction. If Paul is struggling with this, and then he tells us what the struggle was like, we should take that not simply as a testimony, but let's take instruction from Paul's fight. How did he deal with it? And then secondly, the encouragement. We're all in this together. I believe that's why God has put Paul's testimony, just like Paul said in other books, I am the chief of sinners. Paul was willing to say, hey, I, me too. I didn't get in because I was a good person. All right, page two. Thank you for those of you who turned at the appropriate moment to page two. The anthropology of the struggle, that's what I'm calling it. What's going on inside me? Says a DC Talk song from the 1980s. What's going on? Oh, anyway. The anthropology of the struggle. Paul the believer. I love this part of the verse at the end of chapter 7. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. That's the whole point of this chapter. There's a duality inside of us. Every Christian is fighting a war. And Paul's the first one to acknowledge that here. So what does it mean? He uses the word mind here to mean that aspect of himself in the born-again guy, we're going to talk about that, that is serving the law of God, i.e. he loves God's word. But then he uses the word flesh, which is his consistent word in here, as well as the word sin, and then the law of sin, to indicate that part of him that's the leftover Adam, after we became believers, that God did not take care of. He's going to, but he left the leftover Adam. Remember last week, great question, I drew kind of four phases of man. Uh, I know it was amazing all week, you just were like, Lord, I've never seen anything like that. Uh, but in a quick rendition again, they get progressively Dave-like. Um, but remember with Adam, he didn't have to sin, but he could sin. And there was no sin nature in him compelling him to sin, forcing sin, but he was able to choose. Fair enough. Then there's everyone in Adam, what we're like in depravity, that Paul's already talked about in this book at great length, and that is in Adam... We must sin. Now, we must not do every single sin every day in every way. But we are compelled by our sin nature and we are caught in the bondage of sin so that our lives do not reflect God's glory and we continue to sin. We must choose sin to be our master. Even though every individual sin we don't have to do. Then as the believers we talked about last week is we've been made new in our mind, our wills, our affections. We can now... Like Adam, choose between good and evil. We're back. 
What does it mean being born again? It means the capacity to choose, the capacity to think about God, the capacity to believe is all restored. But it doesn't mean you can't sin. It means you now can choose again, but you also have something Adam didn't have. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit, which is going to be chapter 8. And so in this, we're able to choose, but we don't have to do that. And that's Paul's point in 7.25. And then here, this is those people who do not live in Las Vegas. But these are the people in glory. We're obviously in category three as believers today. We can choose not to sin, but our sin nature is going to do war with us. And like Adam, we have free choice, but we can never fall back into total depravity. You can't lose that. And so those are indicator lights. All right, so back to our page. Let's go through the anatomy of the struggle. With the mind, we are serving the law of God. With the flesh, we are serving the law of sin. We'll talk about this idea of law in a minute. What is the law of sin? Uh, but A, Paul sometimes refers to himself in this passage inclusively. So we said last week that in the passage from verses 7 to 25, Paul uses 50 times. He uses I or me or inclusive we. 50 times. It's autobiographical. Uh, but he also uses this idea of sin... And he also uses the flesh and those things. So sometimes he's inclusive in this passage, verse 25. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, the flesh is serving the law. I am both inclusive. And that's how we as Christians talk about ourselves. When we're having a story about what God's doing in our life, we will say, I am really struggling with this. Or I sinned. I am not just a sinner. I'm not just my flesh, but all-inclusive means I. Paul sometimes in this passage is using the all-inclusive meaning I, the guy with the flesh, and I, the born-again guy. B, Paul sometimes refers to himself exclusively from the perspective of the flesh. Sometimes he's just saying, me the sinner. Verse 14, for we know the law is spiritual, but I, born-again Paul, I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Is he saying that's all he is? No. He's looking from the perspective of... He, he's already said in verse 25, there's two, there's two parts. But sometimes in this passage, he speaks from one. I've I got a problem here. But then on the other side, see, Paul sometimes refers to himself exclusively from the perspective of the mind or the inner man. Verse 22, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. So that's what we have to continue to see in here, that Paul is not just saying, I, and then you're like, I who? But I inclusively, I'm the whole package. That's what we are. But sometimes it's like, I'm a wreck. Or verse 24 and 25, Paul says, wretched man that I am. Look, when I sin, I almost always say these following words. Not, not every time, it's not a mantra. But almost every time when I've sinned, and I, I use 1 John 1, 9 and confess my sins, I almost always tell myself, that was stupid. That's sort of my word that's all-inclusive here. Oh, wretched man. That was stupid. Not just intellectually stupid, but that made no sense to do this. I'm saved, and God is so good to me, and I have all these resources, and that was really stupid. 
I don't know what words you use when you... Yeah, Karen. I believe he is. That is the difficulty with this passage. Where good and godly Christians have argued about whether Paul is speaking... How could he be speaking as a Christian? We're going to deal in a, in a page or two more fully with that. But how could he possibly call himself wretched or in bondage to sin? That's not possible. Because he's a Christian. And he's already said that we've been freed from the bondage to sin. Without giving all of it away is, Paul, I believe in chapter 6, is saying, we've been freed from the legal authority of sin. It no longer is my master. But I still have a problem with this guy. He also says, but he has equal points in that very verse. He says, uh, I am... I am a flesh, I'm sorry, sold into the bondage of sin. Where am I looking? Oh, but in verse 22, I joyfully concur with the law of God. So, so it's going to be one of these where, in verse 25, I think, is still the key. Verse 25, Paul brings them both together when he says, So then on the one hand, I am serving the law of, of God. But on the other hand, I, the person, same person, is serving the law of the flesh. This is the indicator light of Paul saying one person serving both at the same time. Current tense, pre present tense, it's complex. But if, if you only take the verses that say, Paul says, I'm of the flesh, in this passage, and you don't also take him saying, I love the law of God, I serve it with my inner man, I desire it, I call on Christ, I, I, I know he'll be my deliverer. All of those are in this passage too. Okay, so bottom of the page again, Paul sometimes refers to himself exclusively from the perspective of the mind, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Uh, to the point that I just made with Anne, and that is, in this passage, Paul is describing three different ways to describe himself. I, both of these things are true of me. So it's not one or the other. He's not unsaved, or he's not the perfect saved man. That, those are the two extremes of this passage. When Paul says, I love the law of God in my inner man, I concur to it and all that, you could take Paul the perfect man, or you could take when he says, I'm a sinner and I'm struggling with these things and these are true of me, as Paul the unbeliever. But I think the appropriate thing is Paul the believer with the struggle. That these are both true simultaneously. You know, I think it's like doing any theological point. If you do the Trinity, and you go and look in the New Testament, or Old and New Testament, and we do Trinity doctrine, there's going to be, there's only one God. Hero Israel, Lord thy God, he's one God, etc. There's only one God in Scripture. But then you have this complexity of that three different people are called God, and what we lack is a verse. Oh, and then there's sometimes to be, there's sometimes in the same verse, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, uh, go into all the world, preach the gospel, etc., etc., in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we have verses in which all three are mentioned, but we do not have a Trinity verse. There's no verse in the New Testament that says, the Father, the Son are, one, are three persons, one God. There's no Trinity verse. There's no at the bottom line. There was one added in the medieval period, 1 John chapter 5. It's not canonical. But the point is, how do you do theology? You take what appears to be contradictions. How can there be one God in three persons? But you find out it's a paradox instead of a contradiction. Because you, you come to realize it appears to be contradictory, but we have to take both elements 
and combine them into a proper teaching, which is there's one God, three persons. I would suggest Romans chapter 7, 14 to 25 is similar in saying, Paul says, I love God. I call on Jesus. All these things. Okay, this guy's a believer. I struggle with sin. It's horrible. The things I do, I don't want to do. How do we combine those? Um, you either say that this is Paul. I don't think unbelievers are right. I would take believer before he got the magic potion. You know what I'm saying? He's a believer, but he didn't hear about the Holy Spirit. Some people have made that the deliverance talk. Or, this is the normal Christian life. All Christians struggle. So, let's go on page 3 and start digging in a little deeper. There are certain laws that regulate this struggle, according to this passage. And Paul mentions four different laws. That's the crazy stuff. The law of God, that is the moral law. He mentions the law of my mind. What is that? Excuse me. How the inner man, or the new creation, thinks, desires, and acts. And he also mentions the law of sin, or the law of sin and death. How the flesh thinks, desires, and acts. Or how I in the flesh think, desire, and act. And then he mentions the law of the spirit of life in chapter 8, verse 2. How the Holy Spirit aids in the struggle with sin. He's using four different ways, or not four different ways, but four different uh, concepts in the same word. It's all the same Greek word. The law of God, the law of my mind, the law of sin, and the law of the spirit. The word law is nomos means law, but let me explain a little more. The Greek word nomos means anything established, anything received by usage, a custom, a law, a command, a principle. Uh, If you're in physics or whatever, things operate by their nature and by their... I was just waiting for physics fill-in. So, but yeah. But things operate by their very nature. And then that law is to observe them operating as they often do. And you can put a system to that and say, that's how this operates. I suggest things like, think about the law of gravity. Or the laws of nature. Or the law of the jungle. Now, the law of the jungle is, the biggest, baddest dude in the jungle wins. That's the law of the jungle. And don't go out there at night and do bring a shotgun. Okay? The law of the jungle, you kind of imagine. If you go out in the jungle, certain laws are there. That's the way it rolls. The law of gravity, that's the way it rolls. It's consistent. Paul's using that word law here in the same way as he would law of gravity, law of the jungle. There is a law of sin. There's a way that sin operates. There's an M.O., of sin. And here's how it usually works in your life. It tries to deceive you. It does this particular thing. There's the law of my mind as a believer. I desire those things and then I seek them. And the law works a certain way to lead you to sanctification. And then Paul's going to describe how the law of the spirit of life works. Now the thing with the law of the spirit of life that Paul's going to bring in is not that the spirit comes in and he overpowers everything and takes over. Because that would be a miracle, which is fine, but it means he would be removing the law of sin and the law of your mind. Right? He would overcome two laws that he has allowed and placed there. The born again, and he left the law of sin there to compete against each other. When the Spirit comes in, he does not take over. He doesn't come in and go, you don't have to think anymore, I got this. Okay? Uh, and he doesn't just slam sin down. So he, there's a triad here. 
You must understand the law of the spirit is working with the law of the flesh and the law of your mind or the inner person relative to externally the law of God. So see, Paul appears to be using the term as an established principle, the way things operate, the normative pattern. Think of the phrases, the law of gravity, the laws of nature, the law of the jungle. Some key verses. Verse 14 and 16. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage. But if I do the very things I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. Excuse me. I find that the principle, same Greek word, law, that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Stop there. That's Paul's point. I want to do good. Do, believer, do unbelievers ever want to do good, spiritually speaking? There's none good. Romans chapter 3, Paul's already gone over the anatomy or anthropology of sin. There's none good. There's none righteous. There's none who seek after God. There's none who do good. Paul's already made the point. Unbelievers could not make this statement. He's saying, this is me. I want to do good. But I find this law within myself that evil is present. That's the way this Christian life looks. Verse 22. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body. A different principle is active. Waging war against the law of my mind. Again, an unbeliever, and we're going to go into that, an unbeliever isn't struggling in this way. The unbeliever is not saying, I really want to serve the Lord. I really love Jesus. I really want to do what's good. Um, but I find in myself a little lack on that side. Paul has already described the inner workings of the depraved. But it makes me a prisoner of the law of sin. I think Anne, not addressing you simply, but or only, but Paul's language here, as metaphorical as it is, he's, he's talking war, he talks prisoner, bondage, being placed in that. I, ha- I think it has to be understood in the context of his language of a metaphor of war. That in this war, I sometimes get taken as a prisoner. In this war with my flesh, I'm sometimes in bondage. I don't think he's talking about his anthropology, because I think in chapter 6 and 7 he's been clear. Justification breaks the legal authoritative bonds with them. But I could get captured again if I allow myself to. I'm racing ahead of my own language, but within that. Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. For the law... Yeah. Yeah, um, the law is spiritual. What Paul means, I haven't, haven't actually begun to say anything about that, but when Paul says the law is spiritual, he doesn't mean that the law can make you spiritual. But he's talking about the quality of the law itself, the Old Testament law, the moral law. And what he's saying is it came from a spiritual origin. The law came from God, therefore it's spiritual. It has a spiritual origin, not a manly origin. Didn't come from men, didn't come from whatever. But the law is good because it comes from God. It's spiritual in nature. But it doesn't make you spiritual, right? It can only tell you that you're not. Good. And then Romans 8, 2, for the law of the spirit of life, excuse me, in Christ Jesus has made you free from the law of sin and death. I'm losing my voice because I've been yelling, go Chiefs, go Chiefs all week. All right. Let's do a quick overview then of the text. 
and say Paul struggled with sin in the big picture, then we'll kind of deal down into some of the more finer points. Number one, Paul describes his struggle with sin. This is what we've been saying. A, he acknowledges his condition. While the law is spiritual, I am fleshly and in bondage to sin. Nothing good dwells in my flesh. Paul makes this point here of, Paul says, there's nothing good in me. But if he stopped there and did not qualify it, then he'd be an unbeliever. There's nothing good in me. But then his parentheses, if you will, is in my flesh. That's his point. There's nothing good in that part of me. But the other guy, <laughs> the me who saved, the, the born-again guy, he wants to do the right thing. But see, evil is powerfully present with me, Paul says, in spite of my desire to do good. That's the point of this whole passage. I want to, I don't always. I should, I don't. I want to do these things, but I don't always do them. But I am thankful that there's a point of deliverance because I've trusted in Jesus. B, he describes his struggle. I do the very thing I hate. With Paul, if he was an unbeliever, he would say, I do the very things I love. I love sin. It's my master. I love doing this. But Paul says, I do things I hate. When I sin, I do not like that. I am unable to do good, and I practice the very evil I despise. Now, Paul's not saying all the time. Paul's, this is not a testimony of Paul's sin every seven seconds. This is a testimony of, hopefully, your own Christian experience, which is, I love Jesus, the Spirit is working in my life, and what was yesterday all about? You know what I mean? Where you're like, or you get up, have you ever had this? Yes, you have. I'll just give the story. So you get up, and man, that this morning, you have your devotional time, you're in the Word, you have a significant prayer time. You really feel connected with the Lord. Your, your conscience is open. Lord, I'll do anything you want. There's a sense of His presence. You get up. You drive to work. And a phone call comes in and you're like, What? <laughs> and the whole spirit, spirit goes right through the left shoe. And you're like, how, how, did that, how did that happen? Or somebody cut you off on the road. On the way to work. You're like reaching for your gun. You're like, where? What happened to your prayer time? You know, um, this is more of the spirit of this. This is not Paul saying, "I just drive mad all the time. I can't do anything good." He's saying, "I want to do good. I concur with the law of God. I I want to do the right thing." And he often does. He he's the apostle Paul, but he lives with a constant struggle in which he gives in to sin on occasions, and it traps him. Paul says, "With my flesh inside of me." I serve this law, this, this operating system. When I get into that system, the energy of that system, I allow myself in there. And so I do serve the law of sin, the way sin works when I give in through the flesh. However, when I do so through the inner man or, or whatever, with my mind, I serve the law, sorry, law of God with my mind. What happens, though, in the Christian life is when you're in this battle, you're looking for hope and you're looking for freedom, and you're looking for an answer. And that's where all kinds of systems are promoted in books, seminars, the deliverance. And there's a lot of different ones. Um, let me explain three of them. Option one. Apparently, there's not enough rules. 
Right? This is what Paul warned us about, why he took the whole time and said, you're free from the law as a code. This is not going to make you spiritual. But the inclination is, man, this is not good. I need some order around here. I need a lot more rules so that I can follow them, so I won't feel as out of control or sinning. And so I'm going to make more rules. Um, you can also go the other way. You can go anti-law, antinomianism, just freedom! Paul says, do not use your freedom as a cloak for sin. And you can just give yourself to those things and say, man, it's not rules, bro, it's a relationship. <laughs> That's true. Okay. Paul's also warned us that we're not in bondage to sin. We can't give ourselves to that. Here's another one. People will say, you know what the problem is? It's your body. Sin is in your body. Paul's going to say, in my members of my body, I see this sin. And so then they start hating their body. Now, we may not do that in this form of Protestantism. Luther dealt with this in his own struggle. But it's somehow or the Gnostic problem. My body is evil. Material things are evil. Only the spirit is good. Um, there's lots of these kind of manifestations of how to make yourself more spiritual and... Well, anyway. A couple more. We've already done these, but... Keswick theology, which is a form of evangelical Christianity that says, basically, you can't be spiritual. That's what's being taught here. The Holy Spirit makes you spiritual. Agreed to it. And it all happens through you, but not anything. You just have to get out of the way. And the Holy Spirit's going to do everything. Um, that's a little too simplistic, because there's all kinds of things like read your Bible and pray, and pursue holiness. There's all these commands to do stuff. And so that's the complexity of that. Okay, I'm not really answering anything here other than saying, uh, I find in my struggle that I have looked at different places. Sometimes there's the rule keeping, if we can just do that. Uh, the famed Bill Gothard seminars, right? The whole generation of Bill Gothard seminars, or, man, there's going to be some haters in the room. Stay with me. Homeschooling. Now, homeschooling is not a law thing. But some people are more homeschooled than thou. Got a wheat grinder? Women are wearing a jumper? You're on a mountain in Montana waiting for the rapture. We can get into things where we find systems of groups of people who agree that their challenge with the flesh within can be overcome by a system or by rules, or by uh, complexity. And you can join churches that will deliver you. You can go to a Pentecostal church, and we'll get that out of you. You're going to get that out of you. Spirit of sinning, come out of there. Spirit of wanting the eagles to win, come out of there. There's deliverance ministries, there's rule ministries, there's, there's crazy stuff. And Romans 7, misunderstood, makes a difference. Good and godly people disagree about exactly what it is, but what you believe about this will dictate to a large measure what you're going to do when you leave. If you think this is Paul the unbeliever, then you've got to figure out, well, then Christians don't struggle. Or find another passage where they do. If Christians don't struggle, you're probably not a Christian. Right, we still have a sin nature. Or we still have the sin principle. All right, back to the bottom of page three then. I'm just bloviating here. 
B, he describes the struggle. I do the very thing I hate. I was unable to do good. I practice the evil that I despise. My flesh wages war against my mind, making me a prisoner of sin. I would say that temporally, not eternally, because he's already said my mind desires to serve God. So he's not saying my mind is in bondage forever, but temporally speaking. C, he explains the cause of failure, which is indwelling sin. The law is not to blame. Paul is not excusing his sin. When he says, hey, it wasn't me, <laughs> right? Now, Paul's only using one person, I. He's not saying there's three eyes in him. I put the I in the middle of the circles to say, when Paul says, I, the sinner, it's him. When he says, I, the good guy, it's him. When he says, I, me, all of that, it is still one person, Paul. Paul is not excusing himself when he says, I have found that I... The inner man who is saved, the redeemed man, does not want to do these things. But I, that same guy, give myself to sin. I chose it. And I have found that this is happening in me, and I am choosing sin. But I know better, and that is not what I want to do on a regular basis. Paul struggle. And he's not excusing himself. He's saying, the origin of my sin that I decided to do did not come from me. It did not come from the new nature. The origin came from the flesh. So when he says, I ended up sinning, he's not saying, I didn't choose to. He's saying, that originated over here, and the law of that overpowered me, deceived me, encouraged me to walk away from God. It did a Garden of Eden with me. It said, you're not going to die if you do this. And God's withholding something good from you. So if you just go ahead and sin, you're going to get what you want. It's the Garden of Eden replayed like constantly. Deceive the mind, get the body to act. And so the sin nature deceives me by its law. I choose to sin. I am culpable. That's why Paul says, oh, wretched man. Um, I'm in this conflict and I'm constantly struggling. However, this didn't come from me. I can be thankful that there's part of me that's redeemed. Nor is he saying that the body itself is bad, Romans 8. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Good. Um, just on a statement about that, uh, not exactly that, but on the whole issue of the body, in a totally different lesson, maybe in Romans 8, I, I want to do a small section on how Christians have historically and theologically viewed the body, as opposed to how Gnostics do and how other people do. And it's going to get into this framework, and I don't have, feel, I don't have time to do it all. I want to do it in the near future. And the question of whether you should bury or cremate Christians who die. Understand, good and godly Christians, I'm not going to be able to prove in the Bible. Some of you are already like, oh, whatever. But... You know, historically, that doesn't prove it, but for almost 2,000 years, the Christian church has agreed across denominations and whatever that to cremate is a pagan ritual that disrespects the body and that the Christian has hope of the body's resurrection and that the body is not evil. The body is not sin. The body doesn't have sin stuff in it. And it's not a throwaway. In fact, God is going to resurrect your body and put it back together and you're going to live with that. Now, some of us are going to look better than this later, right? But the question, we have to resolve theologically the reality of the body. 
And is cremation an option for Christians? Now, do you, I under, do you know that I know uh, that many of you may have had loved ones cremated and whatever? I'm not here to angle or angle in on your conscience. But in this, we have to resolve, because Paul talks about the body here and the body of the members of my sin and all that. And in chapter 8, he talks about the groaning and the body's resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, my bodily resurrection. What is the body and how should we look at it theologically is something I do want to deal with. Unfortunately, not totally today. If you don't want to come for that session, just let me know. Okay. All right. Top of page four. But then Paul cries for help. That's the point. He doesn't stay there. He doesn't say, I'm a wretched, bad person. I'm a complete loser. And, you know, I guess I'm going to go to hell. But he says, I'm a wretched man. I need a deliverer. Who will deliver me. I thank God, he says, through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who can deliver me. Notice that Paul does not say, what will deliver me? It's not the law. It's not my good efforts. It's not my Bible reading. It's not my church. Not my pastors. Not my doctrinal statement. Not my good efforts. Not my giving. So you should probably be giving a lot more than you are. <laughs> Just kidding. No, you don't have to give more, Mark. What's up, brother? That's great. That's a great point. That's a great point. Um, that's the instruction encouragement part of Paul, right? Where he's willing on occasions to say things like this. Now, the Spirit guided him to, but that's a great point. Because the Apostle Paul's not so proud as to say, Dude... I'm in this wretched state of this struggle. But again, understood in the struggle. Not wretched overall. He's not saying, because I made the point of, our hearts are not desperately wicked, according to the Jeremiah passage. When you say the whole spiritual man, is, there's, the heart is not bad. But when we say, me in this war, I'm a wretched man on so many occasions. And Paul also says, you know, I'm the chief of sinners, and those things. Uh, he always keeps it real, you know. And he says, I think I have the passage in here in a minute. Um, hey, it's not like I've attained, Paul says. You know, I'm going to say something here on that point. I think it would be good. Not, no, it won't be a good statement, but I think it would be good to say it here. We make a lot out of, and rightfully so, the fruit that we want to see in our own lives and the life of others. 100% agree with that in chapter 8. It's going to tell us, hey, unless you have some of these fruits, you're not a believer. But if we are going to say, I worry about you, whether you're a believer, because I don't see the manifestation of fruits, by your fruits we will know you, I have to ask the question, who defines the fruits there? Okay, and, and what? But just saying. But I think there's an equal value to Romans 7 in saying this. Unless you're struggling with sin, I have a question whether you're a believer. I'm going to turn it inside out there. Because we often think that the person struggling with sin is probably not a believer. Look how struggling they are. They're losing. But it's the very struggle Paul's talking about, demonstrating that you're at war. If you're not at war, then, and you're not fighting sin, then you may not be a believer. If you're like, I'm fine, man. My whole life is totally placid. Me and Jesus... There's a difference between that and faith, right? And if there's not an inward struggle and there's a war going on where you're trying to mortify sin 
and there's a real battle that continues, you have to wonder if you're really a Christian. I'm worried more about that person than I'm the person who's struggling. Now understand, struggle doesn't make you a Christian either. But just saying, I, I, I think we have to get in our mind, this, there's a reason that this is in the Scriptures. Because Paul and the Holy Spirit want us to know there's an anthropology of a reality of a war. And if we, if we deny that in some way, we're going to go off track. So, I have... Yes, sir? Josh, that's really good. You know what? You can say. That's a really good distinction, you know, in his mention of the flesh and saying sold into bondage, specifically about the flesh, not his whole person. And that's the complexity. Is he speaking about whole person? One of the, the other things. And I think that's good. That's a good point. The believe is fleshly, you know, supposed to being into flesh. That's right. You're, you're not right. You're right. You have the flesh and you can walk in the flesh. That's Galatians chapter 5. Walk in the spirit and don't walk in the flesh. Um, and so you can walk in that fleshly nature. Let's continue because we're going to read those passages anyway. You guys are ahead of your game. So uh, top of page 4 to C. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who can rescue me. And then that goes into Romans 8. Lord willing, we're there next week. Therefore, see Steve, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life, the new law, in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now what you make of that verse is also going to make whether you crazyize your Christian life. If what you think is you get in Romans 8 and it says, it set you free from the law of sin and death, now you can live perfect? No. It set you free from that being the only law within you. It's going to set you out of that and give you a law that can overcome that. But it's not going to be perfect village and we'll go on to that. Let's go on to three. Summary. My mind serves God's law, but my flesh serves sin. Is Paul an unbeliever or a believer in these verses? Um, he's a believer. So let's move on. Uh, some of the reasons why you'd say he's an unbeliever. I am a flesh. I'm in bondage to sin. I'm a prisoner. I'm a wretched man. Those are hard verses to get through. But again, I think within the war, he's saying the I of these passages is I am in the flesh. I am in bondage. But it looks to me like he's a struggling believer. It's all in the present tense. This is the Paul of then. The then present tense of Paul. After he had already said what had happened to him in his conversion. He sees himself as a sinner. Unbelievers, as he has said in the first nine or eight chapters, would see themselves as just fine. But he sees himself in the sinful state. I am a sinner. I have these problems. Three. He has a high regard for God's law in a way that is not what unbelievers have. There are Pharisees who are zealous for the law to use the law to make themselves feel righteous, but that's not what Paul's doing here. He's not making himself feel righteous. He's saying, I concur with the law, which means to believe and agree. Uh, that is not what an unbeliever would be doing. He struggles with sin, as I suggested. If you're struggling with sin, then you hate sin and you want to overcome it. And then the biggest challenge at the end is, he desires to be delivered by who? He's looking to Christ. I thank God that it's Christ. Uh, these and the reality that in the bottom of the page, I think this is consistent with the application of these other verses, that Paul's view of the Christian life is consistent with these. Galatians chapter 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. 
For these are in opposition one to another, so that you do not do the things, or so that you do not do the things that you please. Of course, he goes on to say, now these are the characteristics of the flesh, and these are the fruits of the spirit: love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Right? These are against each other, and there's no law against those. And this is consistent with Pauline doctrine of sanctification. There's a war within, but the spirit can help us overcome that. But this flesh doesn't go away. First John. One, if we say that we have no sin, now as we are Christians, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Uh, This is John's writing, but John is not writing here about how to become a Christian. You don't become a Christian by confessing your sin. He's writing to Christians here to help them overcome the sin that they are struggling with. Philippians chapter 3, Pastor Gabe will be preaching, Lord willing, on that next week or the week after. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which I am also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 3, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh, as to infants in Christ. Now, there's a, there's a debate because people will say, well, there's no category of carnal Christians. So we shouldn't use this as a category. Agreed. You're not allowed to hang out in carnal village and call yourself a Christian. However, Paul is addressing the worst church in the New Testament up to that point, book of Revelation beats it when you have Satan's throne and all kinds of stuff. But Corinth is the worst church, um, but he's already acknowledged the believers there, and he's saying, I'd like to give you more, but you guys are acting fleshly. Verse 3, you're still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? His point is, it's possible to walk in the flesh at times in the Christian life and be addressed that way. You're acting like a mere man. That is someone who doesn't have the spirit. You're, you're acting in a fleshly way. But look what he had said. He doesn't say, he, he doesn't say you're acting fleshly, you're not Christians. He says, as to infants in Christ. Acknowledging you're acting like baby Christians, because you are, but you're acting in the flesh. Don't do that. First uh, Peter chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. This is consistent New Testament war language of internal conflict. First Timothy 1. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Uh, just Paul's humility, as uh, our brother Josh has mentioned. In 1 Corinthians 9. But I discipline my body, make it my slave, so that... After I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Look at the language. I discipline my body. I make it my slave. Why? Because the body is to obey the Lord. It's an instrument of righteousness or unrighteousness, according to Romans 6. All right. So final encouragement. We live between two worlds. That's the point. Number one, what we were. Number two, what we are. Number three, what we will be. What we were, we were slaves to sin. There was no struggle. <laughs> oh, that scared everybody. That scared me. Sorry. 
There was no struggle. There was only one principle at work within us. If you're not engaged in a battle against sin, it is probably because you have never become a Christian, my point from earlier. But secondly, where we are now, what are we now? We're believers in a continuous war. We're in an already but not yet state. Already believers, already tasting heaven, already experiencing some of the glories of the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit, already enjoying those. But we're not yet home. And we got a mess. And we got to make a cleanup on aisle nine. You have experienced a decisive deliverance from sin. The point of Romans 6 was that you've been broken from not only the authority, but the overarching power of sin in which you must sin has been broken in the believer. But you're not permanently delivered from the effects of indwelling sin. B, God has called you to a lifetime of struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. This chapter 7 is only describing one of those three wars, right? If we went to another passage, we talk about the war against the world, the war against the devil. Here are a few of those passages. First John chapter 2, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the powerful or the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Galatians 5, For the flesh... That's the world, but now the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. This is really Paul's reflective chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. This is what he's saying in Galatians 5.17, in miniature. Hey, the flesh and the spirit, instead of the flesh and the new man, but the flesh and the spirit are at war, but you're not always going to do what you think you're going to do. James chapter 4 then, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil. He will flee from you in Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord, the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Just depends on what passage and what what the issue is. Do we need the armor of God to fight the devil? Yes. Um, Do you need the Holy Spirit to overcome the flesh? Yes. And what about the world? There's a lot, of, a lot of pieces about overcoming the world. But it's not through stoicism, it's not through those things, it's through the work of the Spirit. Alright, some final points. You cannot be sanctified by your efforts to keep the law. The Spirit helps you in your struggle. These are things we've already covered in the last few weeks. The more you grow, the more sensitive you will become to your indwelling sin. That's the problem. The longer you walk with the Lord, the more you're like, dude... I'm less spiritual than I was 40 years ago. No, you just know more. And you know a perfect being better. And you're like, have a lesser opinion of yourself, right? Like, God was lucky to get me on this team. And then at the end, you're like, I'm just lucky to be here. Willy Wonka. The ongoing warfare makes you continually look to Christ. God could have delivered us. He could have made it so the moment you became a Christian, you never sinned again. Why didn't he? Because he had a better plan. Because it's Christ who delivers you from the penalty of sin, and it's Christ who will deliver you from the power and the pleasure of sin. Because it's all about loving God. That's the greatest commandment. If he just took all those things away, you wouldn't love him as much. You wouldn't look to him. If there was a magic potion or a law that can make you sanctified and you took it, you'd be like, got that. But the struggle is always looking to Christ. He's my deliverer. He's constantly my Savior. And finally, there is no spiritual perfection in this life. 
though there are a few people in this church that are giving it a good try. And what we will be, we will be free from sin. Let me pray for you.